Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Coach's rules have nothing to do with basketball. He drills it into us. Taking care of other people goes beyond this game of basketball. We reach out to our fellow players. We create a family. Something shifts when I learn that the we is greater than the me. Growing up, Al Harris's plan for his life is clear. Become a professional basketball player and create a legacy at the highest level of the sport. But then, at a decisive moment, he is passed over for the NBA draft. He won't be playing at that highest level after all. In today's meditative story, Al looks at a life he didn't plan for and uncovers how his true legacy is not in his accomplishments, but in the bonds he builds every step along the way. In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories, breathtaking music, and mindfulness prompts so that we may see our lives reflected back to us in other people's stories, and that can lead to improvements in our own inner lives. From Wait What, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan, and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed, the body breathing, your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world. As I step into the backyard, 
I feel the sun's warmth on my face. I smell freshly cut grass. And I see a ton of seven-year-olds running around and playing. I'm only four, but I'm tagging along with my big brother Anthony to his friend's birthday party. My brother's cool. He runs around laughing and screaming with the other kids. I hang back closer to the house, tossing a ball with another shy boy by the pool. This time, when he lobs it back, the ball lands short in the water. I reach out without thinking. Next thing I know, splash! I'm in the pool. I don't know how to swim. But I'm calm. I see bubbles near the surface. Make out the movement of kids. None of them can swim either, so they can't get me. I squeeze out a couple of breaths. But then I start to sink. The sounds from above get quiet. Out of nowhere, a gigantic arm grabs me up by the shirt and pulls me out of the water. Dad's been sitting out front, not wanting to leave the birthday boy's overworked mom on her own. He fishes me out. I cough. I sputter. The wet denim clings to my skin. So does the embarrassment. After I change into dry clothes, one of the older kids walks up to me and says, I'm glad you're not dead, but now we can't play outside near the pool. Thanks a lot, Al. After the pool incident, I obsess about dying. I lay in bed at night and wonder, what the heck does it even feel like to be dead? Do I just go to sleep? Am I in the sky? Is there really a heaven? At school, I read about my favorite president at the time, Abraham Lincoln. That was before we had President Obama. Lincoln freed enslaved people. He's a great man, a hero. But he deals with the same exact fear. He comes up with a strategy for conquering death. To live a life so great that he's talked about for generations and generations. To cheat death, in a sense, by building a legacy that will live on. The thought is electrifying. If I'm talked about for generations, if I leave my own lasting legacy, then I too can cheat death. I decide to make that my plan for my whole life. Like Abe Lincoln, I'll live a life so big, I'll accomplish something so legendary that I'll live forever in people's minds. All my accomplishments center around the game of basketball. When I'm 11, I surprise my dad by knocking on his door morning after morning at 5.45 a.m., dressed, backpacked, and ready for him to drop me at the gym to practice. I dribble the ball in my front yard at all hours. Every day. 
One night after sundown, my neighbor hits a breaking point. She sticks her head out and screams at the top of her lungs. Stop dribbling that damn ball. I'm obsessed. I don't have any other interests. I don't even hang out with my friends. At age 16, my favorite thing to do at 9 o'clock on a Saturday night is to shoot hoops. I take the game more seriously and practice harder than anyone I know. Basketball becomes more than just an obsession. It's a remedy. Whenever I'm scared or lonely, I just focus on basketball. When I get a bad grade on a science quiz, I shoot free throws. When the girl I like says no to a date, I go shoot some hoops. All my confidence comes from the sport. I'm super competitive with my teammates, always fighting for a spot to play and trying to score the most points every game. Coach sees this and he does something crazy. He lays out an amazing set of rules for the team. He writes them down and hands them out to all of us. If your teammate comes to school and he doesn't have lunch and you don't share yours with him, that's punishable on the team. If your teammate is doing something he shouldn't and you don't split it up and look after him, then you're not a good teammate. Coach's rules have nothing to do with basketball. He drills it into us. Taking care of other people goes beyond this game of basketball. We reach out to our fellow players. We create a family. Something shifts when I learn that the we is greater than the me. Coach switches around my position. He makes me play point guard. And it's not my best position. I score 10 points less per game, but I make plays for the rest of my team that turns everything around. Coach's philosophy has us going from losing games to a 21-game winning streak. It lands us in the state championship at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. I look over to the opposing team's bench. They tower over us. We're heavy underdogs. The score remains tight throughout. We're shoulder to shoulder, battling for the win. In the fourth quarter, I release the game-winning jump shot. The entire town erupts with joy. Big group hugs. We rush the stands full of family, friends, people from school and my hometown. There's such jubilation from everyone. This old lady from the neighborhood comes up to me, smiling cheek to cheek, and asks me to cut down a piece of the championship net for her. Our victory touches so many more people's lives than I ever would have imagined. I've learned to think about the we before the me but I'm still completely focused on my own goal. The achievement that will define my own legacy, becoming a pro basketball player. My entire identity is tied to the game, 
What other 16-year-old is shooting baskets at nine at night? It's my singular focus. Who am I without it? I don't know. There is no without it. I'm in a no-frills hotel room in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm here working out with the Cleveland Cavaliers. They want to get to know me to see if I might be a fit for their team. It's NBA draft night. It's like the Oscars for college basketball players, except with much bigger stakes. If my name is called as part of the program, I'm on the path to becoming a pro athlete. It will be the first of my true accomplishments, the thing I'll be remembered for. If my name isn't called, then my legacy is dead in the water. I have a good reason to be hopeful. The Golden State Warriors, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Phoenix Suns, the Houston Rockets, the Portland Trailblazers, and others all invited me to work out with them so they can get to know me. At practice with the Los Angeles Clippers, I'm on fire. I don't miss a single shot. Now I'm watching the picks on television and trying to play it cool. I'm trying to fool myself into believing that this is just a regular night of TV and not the moment I've spent the past 22 years of my life preparing for. Sweat pools under my arms as I watch the announcers rattle off names of the chosen ones. These first picks are all guys I've heard of. Their lives are about to change. I won't be called till closer to the end when it's time for the Clippers to announce their last pick. Whew. I have to force my breath steady. The dinner I picked up on the way back after practice is getting cold. I'm not hungry. Now it's time for the Clippers to announce their final pick. The name I hear isn't mine. But there are still a few spots left in the draft. I can barely breathe. Again, someone else. One name to go. It's another player. My heart crumples in on itself. How is this possible? I worked so hard for so long. I've done everything I was supposed to. I want to stay championship. I was player of the year. I don't party and I treat people well. Don't I get to win? After 22 years of hard work, and after all these sacrifices, aren't I the guy who's supposed to get his goal? I don't have a plan B. I was always told that a plan B is just an excuse for plan A not to work. I focus everything on this one achievement. It was basketball or nothing. And now, it's nothing. No achievement, no legacy, nothing to be remembered for. How am I going to hold my head up? Who am I, even? Al's entire identity is wrapped up in his accomplishments. Having them not work out leaves him without grounding. I've faced it. So many of us have. At this moment... Tilt your head back, spine upright, chin up, jaw soft. On your next out-breath, let go of the accomplishments that define you. Just be. 
Stark sunlight slices through the window. I lean over the windowsill and take in my surroundings. I'm in my new apartment, a nice two-bedroom in a tiny town in Poland called Skorzelitz. I look outside. There are no sidewalks, no fences, just fields of hay. It seems like anyone could just build a house wherever there's an open space. This isn't how my life was supposed to be. I was supposed to be playing for an NBA team in Los Angeles, making millions. Every game broadcast on national TV. And now I'm here? Playing for a Polish basketball team in a tiny village that has two streetlights, two intersections, and not much else. My whole life, I've been climbing and climbing. Now I've landed with a thud. Playing basketball in Europe isn't an achievement. It's a consolation prize. I don't even fit in here. I look so strange to everybody, this six foot six black guy. And being here, filled with shame, I feel even stranger myself. Staring out my window in Skorzelitz, an old woman with a kerchief wrapped around her head hangs her laundry from a clothesline with clips. How does a kid from Oakland, who barely traveled out of the state, land up here? Time slows down. I wonder when I'll see my parents and friends again. The old woman catches eyes with me and gives me a puzzled look. Something I'd receive often in the coming months, followed by a warm smile. There are a lot of foreign ballplayers wandering around Eastern Europe who are selfish and obnoxious to the local culture. Being here, they possess a disdain, a disapproval of their new surroundings. I see this in players on my own team. And when I first arrive, I feel disappointed too. This little Polish town doesn't look like the backdrop for a legacy. It doesn't feel like an achievement. And it's tough. I'm a baby-faced 22-year-old. I don't know myself from myself. All my teammates are significantly older than me. I'm the rookie, and I don't get much respect. But as the season goes on, my old coach's lessons kick in. Treat others well. Think we, not me. Create a family. On the bus headed to a game, It's a long 10-hour ride. No first-class flights or five-star hotels here. I make it a point to talk to the American players and the Polish players. I intentionally reach out. At mealtime, I try the roasted beets that Polish players love and the American players push away. One day after practice, one of my Polish teammates invites me to come out. We pile into this little blue Volvo. There are four of us, and we're each well over six feet tall. My knees tuck up into my nose as I fold into the back seat. We drive out of town and onto a long dirt road. Does this country have street signs? Eventually, we arrive at this ramshackle barn. 
At least that's what I think it is. It turns out to be the home of an older woman who now runs a makeshift restaurant. She spent all day making pierogi, these Polish dumplings. No one speaks English. There are no English signs, no English menus. My teammates order for me. The food is cheap and outstanding. The woman dotes on us and plies us with dumplings stuffed with cheese and potato and meat. I decimate all the pierogies she puts in front of me. I tell them how much I love it. From this point on, the Polish guys accept me. They look out for me. We're family. I'm still lost in so many ways, and I rely on my new teammates to show me around. Communication, I start to realize, is so much more than verbal. It's in a look or a shake of the head, a smile. I never would have imagined I would ever pick up enough Polish to catch on to little jokes in a language whose letters I can barely read. But I'm watching and listening all the time, and things start to shift. I learn to find my place wherever I am. Before I leave the U.S., I'm afraid to travel. I'm afraid of anything too different. When you're an American, you never leave America. So you always have these feelings of, they won't understand me. How will I survive? How will I get around? But then you realize, every town has a main street. Every city has a church. Every family has kids and possessions they treasure at home. I lose my fear of traveling, and I gain an insane amount of humility for just how spoiled, how ridiculously spoiled I am to be American. I take so much for granted: a dishwasher in my house, and a full produce section at the grocery store, and hospitals that have any medicine you might need. Things I think are just normal, I begin to realize are very special. And I start to feel lucky, but also humble. I meet 16 and 17-year-old kids who speak three languages better, frankly, than I speak English. I meet people who've been to 20, 30, 40 countries, and I've been to three. I'm a little embarrassed at how little culture I possess. Poland is just my first stop. I move from team to team. League to league, city to city, country to country, in search of better offers. I travel to Germany, to Greece, and eventually land in Brindisi, Italy. That's where I meet Davide, a 16-year-old Italian kid who lives in my building. He's talkative, genuine, and thinks it's incredibly cool that a basketball player has moved in. In Europe, I learned that it's normal for three generations to live together in an apartment. In Davide's house, it's his grandmother and his parents with him and his sister. I buy Davide a slice of pizza down the block from our building. We stroll around, and he introduces me to folks in the neighborhood. He's a little boastful that he's friends with an athlete. <laughs> Now, I'm open to new experiences and new people. So when his family invites me to dinner, I accept. The meal in their home is like something from a major motion picture. 
I arrive at three o'clock. I've learned a few Italian words. Davide speaks broken English. His sister's English is better. We can't say too much to each other, but we smile and laugh and eat and eat. The meal begins with 15 plates of antipasti, two salads, some thinly cut meats, fruit, a rice dish, and mushrooms. I pig out so much I don't realize there are three other courses on the way. The food, the warmth, and his family's willingness to be kind to a random American who knows no one in the country. It blows me away. We begin eating at three. It's 11 by the time I get home. It's one of the best meals of my life. A few months later, my team plays in the Euro Cup. I get Davide and his family tickets to come see the game. I wave at him from the floor. His familiar grin is enormous as he waves back. I think back to that championship game in high school at the Arco Arena in Sacramento. How happy everyone was when we won. And I realize now how happy I've made Davide. And how it has nothing to do with whether or not we win. When my stay in Italy is over and it's time to say goodbye, I drop off some jackets and some of my official team gear for Davide. His mother is in tears, and my heart swells as well. We lost the cup, but I still feel like a champion right now. There is a real tenderness here. Let's enjoy it. If Al's heart is swelling, how is yours? Drop your attention into the chest, the area around the heart. And notice what is here to notice. However quiet. Somewhere along the way, I make up my mind that if I'm not going to leave a legacy as the greatest player on earth, I have to do something unique with my short time on the planet. I never forget that I could slip and die tomorrow. I'm exhausted after 11 years of being on the road, playing international ball, and moving country to country. Everything feels like it's starting to repeat itself. I decide to retire at age 33. And never play the game professionally again. What a strange, strange idea. But it's time. My final game is in Hod Hasharon, a little town outside of Tel Aviv, Israel. Before I go into the locker room, my girlfriend Mariah shares a surprise with me. She reached out to my teammates for the past 11 years and put together a video of them saying goodbye. It's all these faces from sprinkles of time who I haven't seen in years. Face after face from Poland, Germany, Greece, Italy, and now Israel. 
I hear a lot of, why are you retiring, Al? I'm going to miss you, Al. You're my favorite teammate, Al. I stopped the video halfway through so I don't burst out into tears. I don't want to show up to my final game as an emotional wreck. Seeing all those faces from across all the years, the lives that I touched, and the lives that touched me, it's almost too much to take. But it makes me realize that I might just have created a legacy after all. On the court, the sound of squeaking sneakers and loud cheers fill the arena. I'm on fire. I scored 25 points. After, in a very small locker room and a low-level gym, I tell my teammates, guys, this is my last game. I'm really glad it was with you. I appreciate it. And thanks for letting me be a part of this team. You're really special. I stroll out with no hoopla, no news stories, no social media. I know now that life isn't about winning championships. It's about building relationships. Mariah and I head back home to Oakland. I prepared every day for 22 years for the opportunity to be drafted into the NBA. It was my one chance to leave a legacy and cheat death like Abe Lincoln. And it didn't happen. I failed. End of story. Or perhaps it was the start of an altogether different story. Athletes are always motivated by the numbers on the board. But we're not the only ones who keep scoring life. Most of us do. Some people count their money. Some people count their achievements. Those explicit acknowledgements of their talent and potential and influence. But there are other equally important ways of keeping score. Through the lives we change. The people we touch. The experiences we embrace. After an 11-year basketball career, you'd think my best memory was a particular dunk or a game-winning shot. But instead, I think about the way I build bonds and build communities. People appreciate how I move through the world. I was a kid who didn't know anything but basketball. And the achievements that make up my legacy don't have anything to do with my accomplishments on the court. So I forgive myself for not achieving my first goal in life. And I ask myself, what else might I be missing on the planet? Everyone I come across on my journey feels like a branch in the massive tree of life. When I watch the video in Tel Aviv, it shows me that the tree I built is lush and thriving. And when I watch this video, It finally hits me. I have permission to celebrate my life. Because I've created my own legacy. Not through my achievements, but through my relationships. Through all the people I've touched along my journey. 
and all the people who have touched me. The thought of death still terrifies me, but not as much as the thought of living a small, constricted life. Here I am, moving through the world, taking a different kind of shot, building my legacy through each connection I make and each experience I embrace. Pierogi, pizza, and the level of reflection and sensitivity that many never get even close to. Thank you, Al, for such a wonderful story. It's also a reminder, certainly for me, that the things we value in the end aren't always what we expect to when starting out. We were traveling to London, and I took the advantage of bringing my son with me. We had about two days prior to when I needed to be there. We rented a little car and we headed out on one of the major interstates. And I bet we were probably 20 minutes down the road. We're looking around and we're thinking this interstate feels a lot like America. That's Capital One business customer and Pinnacle Company's founder, Chris Renner, with a serendipitous real life travel moment. Nothing different, nothing very exciting. And we looked at each other in the front seat, kind of turn, your eyes meet. And I said, I think it's time to get off the highway. Took a right down the gravel road. And my son turns and looks and says, hey, dad, I think that's Stonehenge over there. Imagine that, out in the middle of nowhere. And we just thought, how did we find this place? I think it just spoke to the desire to find some adventure in the mundane. Using his Capital One VentureX business card, Chris was able to redeem his travel rewards to take his family on his business trip abroad. This serendipitous travel moment is part of Capital One Business's spotlight on real entrepreneurs and their businesses' offsite adventures. To hear more stories from real business owners, visit CapitalOne.com slash business hub. Again, that's CapitalOne.com slash business hub. For our closing meditation together. I want to jump off two of Al's lines that really stick with me. And the first is when he says, I learn to find my place wherever I am. Where are you? With eyes open or eyes closed, use your senses to connect with the space around you, recognizing that you are in a place a body-mind here, located in space. Finding our place wherever we are. Where are you? Inviting the attention to settle into the body. Letting go of any distractions that may be here and committing to be present in the body. Inviting stability. 
Maybe it's with the rhythm of the breath. Maybe it's in the contact of where you are sitting or lying, standing or moving. Maybe it's in the general sense of calm. Connected. Committed. Here. Finding our place wherever we are. Wonderful. The second line from Al's story I want to remind you of is when he says, I have permission to celebrate my life. It's a celebration that recognizes that his legacy is not a stuffed trophy cabinet, but a valued network. A celebration of the relationships he forged and all the people inspired by him and those who have inspired him in return. So let's connect with our own. We may not be as well-traveled as Al ended up being, but we are, in our own particular way, the center of a network of people. People we have helped, been present for, have supported, sometimes in big ways, often in tiny, tiny ways that matter all the same. Imagine the network that you will celebrate. For some of you, this might be visual. For some of you, it might be a feeling. Or something entirely different. We all sit at the center of a community across time and space, where what connects us are the qualities of the heart, kindness, trust, joy. The small stuff. The big stuff the near, the far, the influence we've just had today and that which stretches back years. Connecting with this legacy, your legacy, in whatever way you can. But remember, Al had to give himself permission to celebrate in this way. So we have to do so too. Often we can feel we don't deserve to celebrate our life. We downplay our impact and our influence. Not today, not now. We can recognize it and we will celebrate it. And while in a way we are the center of our network, we are also a node in others. And with everyone in the meditative story community practicing together, we form a mesh that covers the world, connections of kindness and inspiration that reverberate with celebration. At times like these, when things are tough, we need outs. And if this has been helpful to you, even in a small way, then we're very pleased to hear that.
So thank you, Al, for being so Al. And thank you for being so you. Take care, okay? On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how Meditative Story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and June Cohen. Jay Punjabi is our supervising producer. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Our scriptwriters are Peter Keckley, Florence Williams and Hannah Brencher. Technical support from Robin Wise. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Anna Pizzino, Sarah Tata, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Sammy Oputa, Leah Serametis, Colin Howarth, Chineme Ezequena, Charlie Menezes, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilika, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app, and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode.